We want to be helping carriers ultimately improve their combined ratio. And either that's through lowering expenses or, you know, helping them grow premiums or, you know, sometimes even doing a better job writing business. This is the Insurance Technology Podcast, where we bring interesting people from across the insurance ecosystem to discuss and debate technology's impact on the industry. Join us each episode for insights and best practices from industry stewards and tomorrow's innovators. Now, here's your host, Reed Holsworth. Welcome to the Insurance Technology Podcast. I'm your host, Reed Holsworth. In this episode, we're going to meet Luke Magnet. Luke is the co-founder of Combined Ratio. I recently met Luke, and actually he was referred to me um, by one of our previous guests. Uh, I got jumped on a call, got to know Luke, and man, he's a really smart dude, knows this industry very, very well, and once again, seems like a pretty good guy. Um, so he's on, and in this episode, we're going to get to really learn about Luke himself, his childhood and where he came from and um, how he started Combined Ratio. Stay tuned. It's awesome. Really excited to have Luke on the show. I, I met Luke recently, um, your referral from a previous guest, and um, spent a couple, a little bit of time with Luke, and um, yeah, really enjoyed our conversation. So I'm really excited about uh, getting into it today, Luke. So um, thanks for joining. Welcome yeah. again. All right. Before we get into all of your insurance and insurance technology knowledge, especially as the chief insurance officer, Let's learn a little bit about you. Let's learn a little bit about Luke. Uh, we like to start off, uh, the listeners love to really understand the person and get to know your background. So Luke, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, give us a little bit about your kind of early childhood background. Where'd you grow up? What was family-like life and, you know, favorite hobby sports as a kid? Just tell us a little about yourself. Sure. Yeah. No. So I, I grew up uh, in in Connecticut, not too far from from where I live now as an adult. Uh, sort of your very typical, uh, you know, eighties, nineties, middle class uh, family and upbringing. Uh, you know, live with my folks and, and my sister. I think um, you know, like I, I played sports, but certainly never excelled them in them, and nor was it ever my interest. Uh, I was into you know, video games. I had a great group of friends. Um, you know, I always did, uh, I was like a theater kid sort of starting that young and, and getting a little bit older. And, uh, I guess maybe relevant for this is, you know, I always had an interest in, in computers. My parents, uh, uh they wouldn't buy me like a video game console, like a, a super Nintendo, like everyone else had, they gave me this old computer, uh, and in order to play games on it, I had to learn a whole lot of things. And I think that really started me sort of on the path that, uh, you, you know, I'm still on. That's pretty cool. Do you still play video games? We'll get this a little bit later. You play any video games now, Luke? Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a video game guy. Yep. Absolutely. Really? And I, I've got what two. Do you... Oh, go ahead. What are you into now? Like, what are you into now? Oh yeah. So, in yeah. Real quick. So I, I'm into this Baldur Gate, Baldur's Gate three. Uh, I'm a Dungeons and Dragons nerd too. So that game, Game of the year, best game I've played in a long time. Uh, there's also a game, RimWorld, that I love. I've got hundreds of hours in. And then um, the Civilization series. From the first one through the sixth one now, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours, uh, you know, creating ill-thought-out and ultimately destined-to-fail uh, civilizations. I thought I knew a lot about video games, but I have no idea. 
about any of those. <laughs> I know. I try, you know, it's funny. I try to keep like the nerdiest parts of my interests like to myself. But now as I'm like in my 40s, I'm like, ah, who am I trying to impress? I'm just out there. <laughs> That's awesome, man. All right. Uh-huh. So what did you want to be when you grew up, when you were a kid? Uh, yeah. I mean, I wanted to be an actor, I think, up until I was, you know, well... Oh. Like, I'd say up until, like, solidly middle school. Like, that's what I always did. It was my hobby. I thought I was all right at it. That was sort of my early plan. Okay. All right. So tell us about high school, man. Who were you in high school? What was your favorite band? First car? You know, what What did you do? Tell us about Luke as a as a high school kid. I got. I think we got a glimpse of it already, but go yeah, ahead. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll give you more, though. So, like, high school, you know... um, Again, so I'm in high school from, what, 94 to 98, so I was very into, like, that grunge 90s rock scene. Uh If anyone listens to Sirius XM, like, that lithium radio station, it was 100% my scene then and and very much still to this day. Uh, I was a a, a drama club kid, um, and I had just, like, you know, a great group of of buddies. There there were eight of us. We still hang out all the time uh, to this day. But yeah, that was it. You know, in high school, I was also one of those kids who, uh, uh, so I guess related to the car. So, so I had a car, uh, 96 Mercury, uh, I'm sorry, 86, uh, Mercury Sable. But, um, mm, in order eight. to have it and drive it, I had to get a part-time job. And I was one of those kids mm. that got like a part-time job and like probably put too much of myself into that job. Like I loved it. I loved working. I've, I've always had a job every, every minute of my life since, but, uh, yeah, I think that was me in in high school. What was your first job? What did you do? Yeah, so I worked at a uh, department store, a company that is now Macy's up here, and I sold uh, men's suits for a while. And and uh, oh, I could see it. I could totally see yeah. it. Yeah, you, you know, I gravitated <laughs> towards. It's a di- story for a different time, maybe, but I always gravitated towards like commission retail jobs. And uh-huh. so between like sixteen and twenty. You know, that was a place where, like, if you were a little scrappy, you could make just enough more money than your friends that you sort of felt a little bit fancy. So I I, I always did that. <laughs> That's awesome, man. All right. So was that your first job? That was your first job working at first the First job, store. did that all through high school. Yep. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. So what about after? What happened after? So now you're coming in to becoming an adult. So you went off to college, I assume. Yep. Uh, and uh, tell us about that experience. Yeah, so I went to a small school in, in Southern Pennsylvania for my undergraduate, York, York College of Pennsylvania. I uh, started there as a political science major. At, at this point, like you know, well into high school, I realized that uh, there was not I was not going to be an actor who made any type of, of money or could support myself. Why? But I wanted to be a, a politician. <laughs> I was thinking maybe law school. So I went to sort of this this school and started off as political science, and then I had this this chance run in uh, with a bus driver in the middle of the night going to BWI Airport, and uh, just me and him on this bus, and, and he's chatting with me, and he's like, "Well, what are you studying?" And I'm like, "Oh, political science." And he turned around and he looked at me and he said, uh, "Well, that's what I studied in college too." And so <laughs> I uh, it really I was actually on my way to fly home, and it sort of really made me think, and and I went back to school. And I said, you know what, at some level, I should just do what I'm good at. And so from there, I, I changed my major to computer science uh, to be a computer programmer, something I had done, you know, since I, I was a kid. And uh, yeah, that's what I did. I, I studied uh, to be a computer programmer, uh, you know, did the standard college things, uh, graduated a year early to chase a girlfriend who, who was a year older than me. 
Um, yeah. She was going to a graduate school back where I grew up, went back home. But uh, when I graduated school, the dot-com bubble had just burst. And uh, there were not a lot of entry-level programming jobs out there. So uh, my mom clipped out like a classified ad for a uh, like from the newspaper and, and mailed it to me for a programming job uh, at uh, an insurance company in Hartford, Connecticut. And I applied and, and I got it. And, you know, sort of the rest was history. So first real job was a carrier. Yep. At a carrier. And so again, so I, I'm like this computer science kid and, and I think I'm pretty good at programming. I wanted to do something cool. And so I get this job and uh, they tell me like, we're going to make you, we're going to train you up to be a, a mainframe programmer. So like I, my first job was maintaining a system that was first implemented at this carrier two years before I was born. And uh, we're talking like green screens, like the matrix, and it was not glamorous. And I fought against it for a couple of years. But the interesting thing there was the way that like this was an IT department that had evolved from when IT first came into financial services organizations. And all like the business sure. analysts were all like ex people from the business. They were CSRs, you know, at the time what we called UAs and, and they yeah. were customer service people and stuff. And I'm working in this group of maybe a hundred people on this dinosaur of a system, but there aren't a lot of young people. And the older people that were there that had all this industry knowledge, like they really took it upon themselves to give me an education on what was happening. And so after awesome. a couple of years, you know, I'm sort of like the only young person there. Everyone's sort of retiring. Everyone's sort of rooting for me. And uh, I really made a decision. I, I, was, I was looking to leave the industry. I wanted to go do something more technical and cool. And I said, you know what? Uh, I'm going to lean in on this insurance thing for a bit. So I, yeah. I didn't get a chance to do, I guess, mildly modern programming for a couple of years there. But then I jumped over to solution architecture, where um, my ability maybe to communicate started to become uh, you know, more of an asset for me. And uh, yeah, I, I went and, and did sort of architecture and enterprise architecture, big giant project stuff at the Hartford and stayed there for uh, just about 10 years, I guess. Wow. Oh, wow. No kidding. No kidding. So then what happened after the Hartford? Where'd you go? Yeah. So uh, now I, I'll probably do my best not not to name names. So, you know, at this time, so you figure this is, let's say, between like uh, 2006 and 2010, you know, the consultants were coming in to big insurance technology organizations. And like they were coming in to land, fire everybody that had taught me everything I know and, and make everything just, you know, big and fancy. And we're doing this big implementation for a piece of software that, that I helped bring in. And um, it was just so obvious to me that at the time, my career path wasn't going to just stay in one place and move up. Like they wanted people with consultancy backgrounds to get to where I wanted to go. So um, I had a great relationship with the founders of this technology company that we brought in. And uh, one day I got frustrated and uh, I called them up and I said, listen, if I could get permission and the okay from my organization, like, do you guys have a job for me? And they said, yes. And then just mm. like that, uh, probably without a lot of thought, I made the transition from carrier IT to vendor IT. And so then I ended oh. up at, at agency port um, up in Boston. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I think yeah, you did tell me. I forget that. Yeah, yeah. I forgot that. Yeah. Gotcha. So you went. So you went to a consultant, not to name names, and then 
No, no, I'm sorry. I was still at the Hartford. I never went to that consultancy route, but like that oh, was sorry. a decision ahead of me. It was like it was like if I didn't become a consultant, there was I was not going to be able to rise in a carrier. I felt. Oh, I got you. I got you. Okay, my bad. So instead, yeah. I I said now you know and like those consultancies, God bless them. But you know if you don't start right out of college, I feel like you know you're. you're it's questionable coming in sort of as an experienced industry person, at least for me. So I said, nope, I'm going to go on the vendor side. And uh, yeah, then I, I, so 20, so I was 30 years old, uh, 2010, and I jumped over to the vendor side and I've sort of been on that vendor side, you know, vendor software company side ever since. So were you really early on in the agency port days? No, um, no, no. The party was over. Uh, um, I was there, okay. but. I was there as sort of, you know, there were some movements in terms of, you know, private equity and, and some of that things. I was there for, for two years, um, did, you know, solution architecture for them, did a little product management for them. Um, honestly, it was a huge culture shock for me because oh, I come yeah. from like this environment where I'm probably too fancy for my age at a huge carrier. You know, it was meetings all day long. You know, there was a budget, but like you didn't fire people when you went over budget. And then I moved over to this sort of scrappy software company. It was all, you know, roll up the sleeves, get things done. There was definitely sort of a culture shock for me, but it was overall a great experience. I, I look back at how that organization was run uh, every day in, in, in my company now. And, uh, you, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for what that was and what those guys were doing. Yeah, it's cool. It's great. The agency port story was a great story, you know, yeah. and then so then. Were they part at this point, and I don't know the dates of whatever, they were, this was pre-Duck Creek, I yes. assume. So I left right before Duck. that Duck Creek thing happened. And and honestly, yep. um, I, I I I was living in Boston at the time, and um, I, I was sort of yeah, living there. I was ready maybe to come back to the Connecticut area. My family was here. My friends were here. Um, and so uh, somebody oh. in surety had reached out to me sort of like a, a, as a job. And I ended up jumping to go to Insurity here in Hartford. Okay. So left agency for, you know, whatever to Insurity to, um, again, do solution architecture for a new product they were rolling out. And then that's when I really sort of got more involved uh, in sales, sort of sales engineering and things like that. Oh, no kidding. All right. And so you did that at Insurity for a while. And then what? Then what, Luke? Yeah. So, yeah, we'll go, we'll go through it. So then, then I get somebody reaches out to me. Again, like a headhunter about a new job uh, to go work for Exchanging. Uh, Exchanging's a, a London-based company. They did a whole bunch of technology around Lloyd's, and they had this legacy product that was in some big companies. And um, they were they had a, a brand new core system, policy claims, billing, seating, and they were looking to really good out and take on the U.S. market with that product. So I yeah. said, "This sounds exciting." I, I jumped over and did it. It's where I met my my partner now, Mike. And so for five years, you know, we were really out there trying to jam, you know, London-centric international uh, software into the U.S. market. And honestly, it was great. You know, we had some wins and some successes. We went to a lot of big shows with fancy booths. Um, it was a real great experience. Uh, and then um, they got bought by CSC. And then what? CSC very, very quickly merged with Hewlett-Packard Enterprises to become DXC. And while it was very yeah. exciting, I guess, what those guys were doing, uh, it wasn't yeah. for me and, and, and my partner, Mike. So we sort of had some time to put our heads together in a, in a lull of work there. And we said, you know what? Looking out at the industry, 
doesn't seem like there's like geniuses do running all these organizations. You know, some of these organizations, you you know, come on. Well, listen, someplace maybe, but there's a lot of, there were a lot of goofballs out there doing it too. And we were just like, well, we're goofballs. If, If they can do it, we can probably do it too. So we, uh, found some funding from uh, some guys that we had helped in, in, in their prior lives, quit our jobs. You know, we were going to be a software company, started building this uh, seating platform. Uh, that money fell away due to some some legal things that were going on with, with the money guys. And so, you know, we're left, you know, Mike and I are left with maybe two or three developers, uh, no money. And, uh, you know, looking for jobs and it's like December, Christmas is coming up. We have young families. And then we said, you know what we're going to try to do? Uh, really it was our, our, it was our partner, uh, over in in Russia at the time who was like, well, guys, what are we going to go do now? And Mike and I are like, we're going to go find jobs. But he's like, we got two (laughs) developers. Why don't you just shake your network and see if we can't do some services work with these two developers and just keep us going. So Mike and I said, listen, we're not interested in going out and finding more money. It just, it feels fraught and it's hard to know what any of that looks like. We're like, we'll go spend three months, you know, no money, three months. Let's just see if we can make something happen. And uh, since yesterday, Sunday, uh, we've been doing that same thing for six years now. So, you know, we found some people, services worked, grown from, you know, four people to about 125, 130 people. And um, never took a dime from anybody. Have now we have software products that we sort of self invested uh, and, and funded to to build out. So you know, certainly been a roller coaster. Uh, you know, many ups and downs. But um, that's sort of the story of of I guess yeah, the combined ratio of the company and sort of you know how we move through it. So why the name combined ratio? I mean, that's quite a term in this industry. <laughs> Why'd you name it that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I'll just tell you, you know, it is embarrassing how when you're starting a company how much time we spend thinking about what the name should be so like we were all over the place on what we wanted to do so this last company before it got bought by um csc the the brand we were operating under was zuber x-u-b-e-r and that was like a cool tech sounding name but it meant nothing uh and (laughs) it's not too close to uber and I, i guess my preference was just like we're industry people. Like, so like I spent my whole career in insurance technology, my partner, Mike started off as a producer and then went to the agency uh, technology side. But like, we wanted to differentiate ourselves on being like property casualty people. And so we wanted to uh, choose a name that, you know, reflected what we were doing. And um, I was shocked that combined ratio was available from like a domain name perspective. But when you think about it, and and what our vision's always been, is that we want to be helping carriers ultimately improve their combined ratio, and either that's through yep. lowering expenses or you know helping them grow premiums, or you know sometimes even doing a better job writing business so there are fewer losses. That's the level that we want to be communicating our value at, as opposed to you know just doing big giant projects or, or this and that. We wanted to be more focused and aligned on what our customers wanted. And so combined ratio sort of came up. We we did do a little pivot at first, uh, like our URL, our, our domain name, it was combined rat.io. And I love uh, that. I thought it was modern that, and Greek. That's so, that's so dirty. Like nobody else would get it. But like, no. yeah, it's good. And so <laughs> the way that I found all the employees were, were telling people their email, it was, you know, someone at, you know, something dot something at combined rat.io. 
So, so you know, my partner Mike is getting all agitated with me about it, and I'm like, if we could get combinedratio.com, I would have done it, but it's not there. And then he's like, "Are you sure?" And so this is like three years after we're in business, and so I just like go to GoDaddy and take a look. Sure enough, combinedratio.com is available. So we snapped wow. that up and made the pivot. But um, I miss the old one still. That's awesome. So tell us a little bit about your business, your role. What does Combined Ratio do today? Who is your customer? What do you do? Yep. And then yep. what, what is your role? And how are you impacting the industry? That's it. Sure. So, so we have two silos. The biggest silo by far is our services silo. So this is where you know we're really doing um, a couple different things for predominantly insurance carriers, although we do have MGA clients as well as big giant brokers. But you know, we'll go in and and you know, one of the things we do is if there is a technology need that is not easily solved with off-the-shelf software, like we'll yeah. do bespoke builds for uh, insurance companies, right? So you know, there's a couple things that we've done. These are things typically where companies are like, we think that this is a differentiator for us. We don't want to do what everyone else has done, and we need a little help to build something that's you know enterprise caliber. You know, that's something that that we'll do related, you know, oftentimes companies have already built these systems and for whatever reason, you know, they're, they're on older technology. And when they go to market to try to find a replacement, they can't find something that works exactly the way they need it to. So we also do a lot of, of legacy modernization. This is, you know, typically full re-architectures, full rewrites, you know, getting things from, you know, legacy software, legacy backends into sort of modern cloud native architectures um, and then handling, you know, the hosting, you know, future development, things like that. The third thing that, that is really one of our services tenants is around configuration. So, yeah. you know, everybody wants to buy configurable that used to be now it's like low code, no code type platforms. Yeah. And the sale yeah. makes so much sense. It's like, hey, you don't need expensive technology people. Just let your business people do the work or maybe let your BAs do the work. The reality is, is that the best of these systems still requires a little bit of a technical mindset. And so where we've been very successful is getting, uh, you know, lower cost people who don't have what it takes to be maybe developers in some of the geographies where we source from, but are still people with computer science degrees who understand how an SDLC works and getting them like really up to expert level on configurable systems and giving people a little bit of scale there. So like, those too many words. Those are the three levels of services we really offer now. And then on the product side, uh, we have built two products. You know, one of them, um, it's an we we say it's an agency engagement platform. It's really a uh, insurance specific CRM system, something that that puts the agent sort of in the middle of the transaction, as opposed to making you sort of shoehorn the agency in later. Helps you get a handle around your distribution centers. That's uh, Impact Engage. And then we have a, a policy um, uh, system too, very lightweight, very configurable, very inexpensive, you know, made so sort of quick speed to market, get up, get some business on the books uh, without having to do, you know, big giant core system implementations. And then I guess, you know, related to your questions or how are we changing things? You know, we built those products without, again, without investment, without venture capital. Nobody is sitting on us saying, you know, we need you to get X amount of return on those products. So as the products are finished in production, premium running through them, you know, we sort of looked at, okay, what's the next step? Like, let's, 
do we do we find some money or invest our money in big marketing plans and go to the shows and start competing with some of these well-established guys or well you know well-capitalized guys and it just felt like that was just more of the same for the industry so what we're yeah. actually pursuing now and and you know it's a little early days you know we'll have more as we get to the end of the quarter is that you know we're interested in in donating this software to the industry you know particularly the policy tool nobody's policy system is a differentiator for them. No one's like, I'm in love with my policy system so much. So, you know, or the thought is, is if we just sort of, you know, donated this software to somebody, you know, the source is available, instructions, you could get this up and up on your own for something very quickly and, you know, give it something, the industry could take it, do what they want. We've got some organizations we're talking to about, about sort of managing this for us. And then we could just, you know, if people were interested and took care of it, we could just offer sort of a level of enterprise support if people are interested, sort of like the, the Red Hat Linux model. You know, that's something that we think is, it's just different. I, I think it feels like a little bit disruptive. And, you know, we hope that it starts a conversation about how much technology really should cost for sort of yeah. these commodity type functions, back office functions. Put your money into grabbing excellent third-party data. Put your money into your distribution channels, right? But if it's about processing endorsements on a workers' comp or a GL policy, like that's something that feels like it should come in at a much lower price than than what it comes in today. That's interesting. So I want to dig into this. Yeah. But before we do, so basically for the listeners, what you're saying is, is you built a policy system that you're going to give away. And, yep. and and in in turn, you'll get services work out of it. But yeah. before we get into that, because I really want to beat that up a little bit, what are most of the most like? What's the if you had a list a few of the systems that you mostly work on at Combined Ratio today? What would they be? Like policy systems? Like are you working yeah. in Salesforce? Like what so is like most, most of the time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, most of what we do is on like the core system side, right? So policy okay. claim billing. And most of what we do is probably on the policy side. And honestly, while, you know, we've done a bunch of like personal line stuff, our specialty is in commercial lines and our niche is in the excess and surplus non-admitted market, right? I would say like, like if I had to say that in a more succinct way, it's underwriter driven property casualty business. It's, it's stuff where an underwriter is in there making real decisions and it's more complicated risk maybe. Then sort of like this flow business that can just come through and get automated, you know, submission through issuance. That said, it, the system that you built that you're going to be offering for mm-hmm. free, essentially, mm-hmm. um, is it is it good for that market? Yeah, the it, it, surplus. It market. is like because you know what, it, it's good for again, and I don't mean to say commodity. I need a better word than commodity business. It's good for the more interesting types of property casualty business. It's for things where if you look at like the big vendors out there and they've got their templates and they've got their constraints and you're like, this isn't going to make sense. Um, you know, our product, it's, it's built to be able to easily model sort of any risk and any workflow. So I think it's, it's if there are small things that would cost you a fortune to get into your big admin system and you're like, I just need something that, that gets the dollars on the books, you know, this would be a good solution. It's, it doesn't have all the bells and whistles of the, of the big guys for sure. But it's got enough yep. of what you need to, you know, go through your submission quote, issuance life cycle, um, you know, partners for rating. It does all the the document issuance and, and all that stuff. And then I think it's so real quick, but so complicated risk right there. Number one. Number two is 
if you need something low cost, like if you're testing the market, if you're just out to market for something and you're trying to yeah. get a feel for what this is going to look like before you want to spend $5 million on one of the big guys, this is something where like we could get you up to speed with something in two, three weeks, or you know, you could take it and do it yourself pretty soon. And you could at least have the controls that you need to satisfy yourself that data is being handled appropriately, there's security, that you know, policy constraints and underwriting boxes are being met and get out there fast so that you can have some time to test out the market and feel out what you want before you make a much bigger investment in something else. Hmm, that's interesting. It was it a strategic decision to kind of focus on that specialty side of the house or did you just kind of in battling it out in these large carriers and whatnot, or just carriers generally, um, did you kind of get kind of ground was soft there for you and you started to develop, you know, a reputation within that? Because I would assume it's hard to, to, to really compete with some of those, you know, big, 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 big That's SI exactly relationships. Right. Like, like yeah. I'll tell you, while, while there are vendors that we work with on an SI basis, uh, we've typically stayed away from getting into like the big SI game with the big core yeah. systems. It's hard to compete with the big giant guys. It ends up being like a a race to the bottom in terms of racing and pricing and everything. And honestly, totally. you typically don't need people of the highest caliber to get some of that in for the easier business. So like what it just that excess and surplus specialty market stuff, it just sort of naturally came to us. So again, you know, we're, we're differentiating ourselves based on being industry people where we hire our sort of industry expertise here in the States. We've gotten very senior, very well-respected people. And you need those type of people for the more complicated, you know, not cookie cutter business cases out yeah. there. So I think it naturally evolved that way. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So going back to... Hey, I'm building a policy system. I've built right. it and I'm going to give it away. Um, and now, are you, will you allow other people to wrench on the system? Will yeah. you allow yeah. other vendors? And so it's not just, you're not just like holding it, hey, only us can do work on it, that this is. kind of thing. It's, hey, here you go. go so it, again, it's early days on, on sort of this for us. But the, the important thing, like I want it out there. I want it for free, right? I want one button Azure deployments and everyone could take and do themselves. And we want the source to be out there. But like, I do think that because of just the nature of the industry, throwing it just completely open source out on GitHub, everybody's making their own, you know, commits to the thing. We got to be a little yep. bit careful with that because we don't want it to get to a place where it's crazy. So where we're, we're talking to people right now, we'd like some organization in the industry, some not-for-profit organization. And we've got a few, you know, uh, institutions of higher education, or there's a few good not-for-profits to be able to take it and do just some level of shepherding around it. So here's what absolutely day one, people can take it, build it up. It's a, it's a, it's a modern system built on microservices. There's an extensibility framework and integration framework. Anyone could take it and build whatever the heck they want around it. Where we just want to be careful is if people build cool stuff and they want to bring it back into the product, just so we're again, donate to the industry. We want people to have that capability. We just want to be a little bit mindful that we put some controls around it so that it doesn't yeah, become totally. crazy, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. They could totally get out of hand. And so you need oversight yeah. at, to some yeah. degree around. Um, That's pretty cool, man. That's we're really see, cool. You know what? It's different. Like at some level, you know, like we're, we're sitting around, we got this product and it's, it's like, we always said, 
that we were going to do this this company differently. Like we weren't going to preside over failures. We weren't going to do the same things that all the other insurance software companies did before. But when you get into it and you're dealing in the day to day and it's about making sure, you know, money's coming in and payroll's getting met, it's easy to lose sight of that. So, you know, the end of this last year, maybe, you know, beginning of fourth quarter last year, we're like, we've got these two assets. We got to sort of make a move on what we're going to do with them. And it's like, this is just the best opportunity to do something that other people are doing. And honestly, Reed, maybe we're going to do it and no one's interested and it becomes like a big humbling moment. But it seems like there's low risk in at least trying. And again, this is related to like, even just for like our core services business, the best work we do is with relationships that we have as opposed to just strangers that we've convinced to to sell the, to buy things from us and so like i think that this is the year where we're less interested in doing some of the typical sort of sales and marketing things and i think that we're more interested in investing in building credibility in the industry and becoming a part yeah. of the organization uh sorry becoming a part of the conversation as a better yeah. way to drive revenue and i don't want to become part of the conversation by talking about AI or general ledger, you know, blockchain ledgers or anything like that. Like it feels like this is just a more meaningful thing we can do that is closer to actual pain points than some of the other conversation out there. It's interesting. You know, there's so many services companies out there have tried to become <clears throat> software companies and <clears throat> by building products and they, you know, and that's a lot of it is pushed by their ownership. Right, yeah. the investors in the business, because we both know that the valuation of, of software, you know, especially SaaS wow. software, is is way different than a services company. In your case, you and your co-founder, you uh -huh. guys bootstrapped this with, like you said, literally nothing. Um, but yep. you guys started this, and so you don't have people that are pushing you to do this thing to drive a higher valuation that may be kind of unnatural for you and your business. Because by the yeah. way, for those who don't know, that is not ever, I don't know uh, an example where that, and I'm sure they're out there, but at least in our industry, where that has actually worked, you know, <laughs> like, right? But, but Reed, <laughs> I couldn't agree more, but I don't want, like, let's all calm down. Our interest in building products is because of a potential future valuation, you know, for Ugh. an exit out there. And I'll tell you our pivot, our pivot was, I don't know, you know, we're still, you know, mid forties, like, I just think we're so much less interested in an exit and it changed all the math. Like, you know, then we, we've had a couple conversations, you know, it's all about, you know, getting the things to look right and like to be able to say, well, this is how much we'd want. How can we justify evaluation? You know, what are the multiples on, you know, revenue, yeah. you know, uh, subscription revenue versus anything else. And at some point it just felt so separate from the actual work of making insurers lives better, which is why they give us the money. And we just said, you know what? Let's just focus on the money that's coming in the door and less worried about this hypothetical exit we might make based on these valuations for these products. And so, yeah, I mean, I guess that that's why we're here. It's a it's a logical conclusion to us stepping off the path that, that you mentioned, which I agree with you, rarely works. It's pretty cool, man. It's very free for you to be able to run your business the way you want to run your business, you and your partner, as opposed to the way that the board and, and, and the investors and everybody that's invested their money. And, and it's not to like 
say that any of them are wrong. They just want to return on their investment. But but you're saying like, look, man, this is more of a lifestyle business right now for us. And we want to keep doing what we're doing. Hey, maybe there's an exit, you know, in sight in the future, but we don't want to pivot and, and, and transform our business and the way that we operate it to do so. Yeah. Is that and, fair? And, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I would say, listen, it is not that we don't want to aggressively scale and grow and get bigger. Mm-hmm. I just of I think that we want the money to come from actual revenue as opposed to hypothetical investor revenue, right? Like, yeah. like we want to do do the thing. So, yeah, I mean, it's freeing some days, and and some days it's it's terrifying without that support. I can tell you, you know, I this is like a Luke personal thing. I I spend several years quietly jealous of all the people that went out and got good money from good, you know, angel and venture firms and became yep. a part of a community of people that could help and and get you into the right conversations and and get you invited to the right parties. You know, we didn't have that. We yeah. were we, we weren't a part of an accelerator. We didn't have venture capital. Like we were never like in the cool kids club. And yep. and so I'm still like dealing with that a little bit. Certainly this environment, you know, it, it it's hopefully showing that we made some good decisions. But I will just say, I think that there's tremendous advantage in being able to have, you know, board people and this or that, giving you a level of structure and support. But most days we're happy not to have it and to be able to do whatever we want, take the swings that we want to take. And if something doesn't work, you know, it was just our time and money. It, 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 we didn't have to feel accountable to somebody else who put their trust and uh, investment in us. It's really, you know, us making decisions for ourselves and our employees and our, our current uh customer base. I think, you know, one of the ways to combat that, what a lot of people do that are bootstrapping, that don't want to really take money from the street, you build a really badass advisory board, you know? Yeah. And and then yeah. you and then you give them a piece of the action. You know, you bring them into the business. You give a little piece of ownership. Um that can be pretty powerful. Have you done any any advisory board stuff? You know, we we haven't. We've got of course we've got our contacts and there's people we ask for advice. At the end of the day, the services organization, our customers in the services organization and the work there has given us the best sort of outside opinion that you could ask for, right? We are constantly seeing how they're testing the market, what's working, what they need from us. Like like we are not building product in in a silo. Like we are out there in the industry because of that services work that we're doing. So I'd say at some level from an industry perspective, we haven't needed it. However, there's obviously a difference in a relationship between someone on like an advisory board who's on your side and a customer. Yeah. And, you know, as contract yeah. time comes, things shift. The other place where like an advisory board would probably be helpful for us and something that, again, we've looked into, we've had some conversations is just for like the non-industry stuff, right? But yeah. again, we're sort of doing it on our own. You know, so we brought on a, a, a CFO last year, um, yeah. someone that, that did... Uh, you know, mergers and acquisitions for a huge defense contractor to come in yeah. and sort of help us get the money right, polish us up, make me, we're looking right, making sure we're making decisions like like adults and, and not children. We hired um, somebody from a large consultancy with a, uh, you know, predominantly property casualty background, someone really well respected in the industry to come in and really take over, you know, day-to-day operations uh, and some of the revenue stuff to let Mike and I focus on some other things. So I guess 
what you're saying makes a ton of sense. We're doing it the hard way still. We're, we're, we're hiring people and bringing them in. Yeah. I think we're very close to an inflection point, though, where we're probably looking to add a level of structure outside. And, and if it's an equity structure or anything like that, you know, those are conversations that we'll have to weigh. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that you're right, that that's something that we need to probably move towards as we look get through 2024 and, and look towards 2025. The thing that I've learned in my career is like, Boards, advisory board, whatever, you're skin that cat or whatever. Um, if you get the right one and you, and you pick and choose. And now with a board board, if you're taking investment, you don't get to choose uh, yeah. typically. You can choose your, you know, who you get married to, but you don't necessarily choose the crew, um, let's just say. Um, so, but on the advisory board, it's really nice because you can pick and choose the people that have come on. And what I've found is that those people – They'll help you with things that your customers and others won't in ways. They'll make calls. They'll open up doors. They'll lift up rocks. They'll, you know, show up and put gas in your car when you run out kind of stuff, whatever, whatever you need. Right. Um, but, but anyways, um, sounds like it doesn't, for you, you guys are crushing it at the end of the day. You know, if you decide, I mean, you have a CFO, I think a CFO is critical to an organization, especially as you start to scale. I mean, it's, yeah. it's wild. Like you said, I mean, it turns you into adults all of a sudden. You're like, what do you mean I can't expense that? Like, what? You, you, know, <laughs> I mean, you couldn't be more right. It was embarrassing. You know? it, it was like the first few months were embarrassing as, as he's looking through the number, like, you guys <laughs> did this? Well, like, well, I'm pretty sure we had a good idea and a rationale at the time. It, it looks crazy now, but. Yeah, it was that was a great move. But you can always pivot very quickly and um and, and but it doesn't even matter. You are retaining so much of, of your equity within the business doing what you're doing now and you're growing a profitable business because yeah. you have to um which doesn't really exist out there. Uh, uh, they do, don't get me wrong, but it's yeah. it's tough. And the other route is hey, don't even worry about profitability, take on money you know, and let's go to the next investor, you know, you, and let's, let's run down the alphabet, A, B, C, D, yeah. and hopefully we get to, you know, IPO or something, right? That doesn't it's make sense. Totally and I know that people do it. it. It just, that is too different from the way that I think about money. And it, it sounds is. great. Again, on the outside looking in, yeah, it'd be fantastic to have a huge chunk of change in a, in a bag account that we just burned down. It's just, it's just not the way that, the I don't know. I don't think we're built that way. That, that, you know, our stress now is spread out across just as the money comes in, are we, you know, what, our, what does our burn look like versus our expenses? But that stress is constantly spread out. Having these periods where, you know, you've got the, the funding and there's no stress and then the stress slowly ramps up till you need that next tranche of money. That just feels oh, yeah. like something not compatible with, with what I could do personally. Oh, well, you get the money and then, you know, a month later, it's like you need to start hitting those numbers. Oh. You know, like, I mean, there's no, I mean, it's, and it's, you always got to hit your numbers, but like you said, there's a little more flexibility. You have to so, structure the bid in this way. Wow. You got to look in this way. You got to, you know, it's different. It's very different. So for us, uh, we, we were having a conversation with somebody about a, a, a about, you know, just sort of like a, a business so size transaction. And this is a guy, I owned a company, really a successful one. I respect him a lot, but he, he said it best. I thought he's like, you guys built this thing, but you still have it every chip on the table. And yeah. to me, like that's the way that I think about it. 
Like we have all our money out on the table. And at some level, it's because we we trust ourselves. We trust the the team that we've built around us, you know, from from the top to the bottom is amazing. And we trust like our ability to navigate this industry. But that I guess is the thing that keeps us awake a little bit, is that, you know, without taking some money or something on, everything still remains at play. And you know what? That could go bad. Like like market forces could change. We're, we're, we're seeing things like I'm very glad I don't do a lot of property work right now. Um, and, and this could all go away. And I guess like what you have to be comfortable with is saying, you know what, if this went all went away tomorrow, that would be a really sad and hard few months. But I know what I know in the industry. I'm you know an employable person. If, if it all went away, yeah. you just have to pick yourself up and, and get back out there. As long as, you know, my family's being taken care of and, and I can scrape enough together for, for that. And I, it's just being comfortable with that for the time being. But yeah, dude, you say that like that's so easy to most humans out there. That takes huge cojones, man. Like a lot of people don't view the world in that way. They don't when we, like they're afraid I mean, to even go out, and do anything on their own. Like that's easier said than appetite done. Appetite for risk is probably more important to the success of combined ratio than anything we know about how to build software or about insurance or anything. It's that we just had an appetite for risk. I, I think that we built, we spent 20 years building careers that gave us the tools we needed to do something. And that was smart. I tell people that want to be entrepreneurs all the time, spend a lot of time learning about something boring that not a lot of people want to do. That That's thing number one. But then it is <laughs> having just like an appetite for risk. And it's a roller coaster, right? Like today's a good day, you know, Three weeks ago, maybe I was having a bad day. You would have gotten a much bit different story about me, but we're still on the roller coaster. We're, we're hanging on and um, yeah, we're excited what to come. It's what makes things like trying to get out there with a free poly admin system. It's what makes things like that so worthwhile. It's like, yeah, we got all this risk, blah, 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 but we're trying to do something different. If we, if we only had the services work and the money was just coming in, I think it would lack. The risk wouldn't, we wouldn't have the highs to overcome yeah. the lows of the risk. But being able to go out there, take some some goofy maybe swings at, at the plate and really try to change something, that's what's exciting. And being able to disrupt at a more, I think, honest to our organization and fundamental level for the industry, being able to take a shot at that as opposed to just say we're agents of disruption because I'm going to go in and do uh, uh, whatever crazy things they say, that's what makes it sort of all worthwhile. So yeah, I mean, you know, we're going to go out there, we're going to do something crazy, it'll make all the stressful things uh, sort of balance out. And if it works, that's great. And if it doesn't, I'm sure, you know, next year, I'll, we'll have a different crazy idea that we're going to go out there with. Where do you think that your appetite for risk, as you put it, comes from? You know, like yeah. you said, hey, I, I, you know, I can take on the risk and, My you know, personally, and as, as a leader, um, like I said, it's very, it's much more easier said than done. So where do you think you get that from? Is it, is okay. it something your childhood? Like what? Like why? No, like why do you gonna, so self-confident in that way? I'm going to go on a tangent here. Stare with me. I'm coming to this. Give me, it's going to be a short one. Look at this. So Mike and I are 50-50 partners on combined ratio solutions. And when I met Mike, like I worked for Mike, like, like he, he was my boss for many years. But when we started this, he said, no, you know, we're going to do this 50-50. And I didn't need that because like in, in the, maybe the way we talk about it, 
Like I'm more of an operator, right? I know what I'm good at. I know how to have my conversations and, and I'm pretty good like working in an organization. But, you know, Mike of the two of us, Mike is the one with like the vision. He's audacious. And I'll tell you, he just, to me, and, and I tell him this sometimes over too many beers when it makes everyone uncomfortable, but like his, he worked with me. We, we made some money together, but like he really looked at me and said, you know what, Luke, we're going to make this whole thing happen. You know, we'll do this 50, 50. You just got to trust me a little bit. And in the very beginning, like we have young families, we're just out there, like, like in the beginning, there's no money and we're not getting paid. We're just doing this crazy thing. It was really yeah. his vision. And his willingness to take me on 50-50 and to do this really. And we, there's no daylight between us. Like six years in, we've never had a serious disagreement. Like, like we are partners. Wow. That's what That's gave all- me a lot of the confidence. And I hope that there are times where Mike would say when it was crazy that I gave him a, the level of confidence to keep going. But I would say having somebody to shoulder the burden in a true 50-50 way of having a company I can't imagine doing it otherwise. I, I was talking to another founder and I just said, uh, someone I respect, and I just said, boy, it must be lonely. And he was like, yeah, it can be really lonely. We yeah. always had somebody else. And I will tell you something, it made every risk seem easier to take. It, it, it made every idea seem a little bit better when we're both over beers saying, yeah, that's great. Um, I 100% attribute it to, to that, to to our structure. Like the thing about Mike is, Mike has never walked into a room where he didn't feel like he belonged in that room. And in like the early days, that was just something I did not have. And so a hundred percent, you know, people always ask me like in my personal life, it's like, like, are you and like friends? And like, I, it always gives me some pause. And I say, you know what? We're not friends. I think we would have been well, friends if we, if we hadn't done this, but, but we're something different, right? Like in, in many ways, right. like he's as close to me as, as family, Right. And we spend a ton of time together. We enjoy enjoy each other's company, but it's just like a different relationship. And I think that finding that right person with like a similar worldview but complementary skill sets, like it, to me, if if I was a guy who had to invest in in uh, startup companies, I think that partnership dynamic would be one of the top three things that I would look at. I think that that's really what gets you through the 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 bad times and helps you take advantage of the good times. All right, wasn't that great? What an interesting dude. It's very rare that you meet a business, especially within kind of our space and, and within technology, where they're not taking investment. They are truly bootstrapping the business like Luke and his partner has. You know, it's it's interesting because when he starts talking about, you know, what he's laser focused on and what he was laser focused on or is focused on is driving customer value. He's not having to think about positioning, building, you know, doing all this strategery, if you will, if that's even a word, um, on packaging the business up for future investment or for sale in the future. It allows you to be free and allows you to operate how you want to operate. That's not to say that you can't have an investor that is really for you around it, but it's just different, folks. It is different. And um, it's really cool. Really smart dude, very smart business, doing big things with all the freedom to do what they want, you know? And so look, in the next episode, we're going to get a little bit more into Luke and his leadership style and how is Luke as a leader. It all plays together. 
Really, really cool stuff. Stay tuned. You're going to love it. The Insurance Technology Podcast is a production of Ivan's. Visit insuretechpod.com to contact us, suggest a topic or guest for an upcoming show, and subscribe to be notified when our latest podcast is available. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app. It's where you can also leave us a rating and a review that helps other people find the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.